God from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time, Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who, make, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? This is the word of the Lord. Leighton Lockett. Nevin Zimmerman, Bob Hopper, Jim Middleton, Mike McDaniel. Random names you've never heard of. Doesn't mean anything to you guys, but they mean so much to me. These are the names of some of the Christian leaders in my life who God has placed in my life who helped me become who I am today. 
I thank God for these people who have played a significant role in my life. And I felt like I needed to give a shout out to those who lead others well, because last week, it almost felt like Paul was putting down leaders, right? Who, who is Paul? Who is Cephas? Who is Apollos? Were any of them crucified for you? And in an attempt to bring unity and to show the people in Corinth that Christ is the ultimate leader and foundation, Paul seemed to be putting down leaders. If you were here last week, you might have gotten the impression that leaders are not important. I said last week, I said, you know, if I say something wrong and you believe me, it's on me. But if I say something wrong and uh, you believe without checking against the Bible, it's absolutely on you. Right? So why do I need to even say anything? Go read the Bible. And I said that was more important. Go read the Bible more than listening to me. So it might sound very much like, oh, well, who cares about leaders? Why do we need leaders? And yes, compared, in comparison to Christ, human leaders are nothing. Christ is our ultimate leader, our foundation, our confidence. Yet God in his goodness saw fit to give us leaders in the church to help the church do the mission it's called to do and also to give us leaders individually for us to become more and more like Jesus. So I wanted to make sure that I kind of brought this up because I feel like last week I just trashed leadership. No, leadership is important. Paul was very clear, he wanted to, but he didn't want leadership to lead to division. He wanted the foundation to be set before he talked about the value of leadership to say first and foremost, make sure you know that the ultimate leader is Jesus and the ultimate truth is the gospel. In chapter four of 1 Corinthians, Paul is now reestablishing the call of leadership after almost tearing it down in chapter three. Paul takes the false ideas and the wrong ideas of leadership in three. Now chapter four is establishing his own authority to the Corinthians and in doing so, we gain some remarkable insights into what leadership is. So I don't know if you guys know this, but many of the Corinthians did not think very highly of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, we have a sample of the kind of things that they had been saying about Paul. Paul heard them say, he reports in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, says this, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. I feel like it's somebody like judging like fancy football or NBA basketball players. Like, he got a good outside game, but man, he's he got weak posts, you know? Or it's like, oh, it's flash, all flash, but can't finish, you know? He got million dollar moves by 10 cent shot. I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like they're just really evaluating and judging Paul here. In other words, he talks a good game in his letters, but when he shows up, he's very unimpressive. Now, who, there's this idea of, they have this idea, well, why listen to Paul? He's very unimpressive, which for me is kind of weird. I'm like, dude, it's Paul, right? Like, if you could criticize anybody, you would criticize Paul. What would they say about me? You know what I'm saying? Like, that guy's pathetic. But it's a sample of their judge, the kind of the judge, judgmentalism, this dismissive attitude towards Paul. And just as an aside, I gotta throw this out there. And I love having asides in my sermon. So this is another one of those asides. Before we notice how Paul corrects their thinking, I don't know about you, but for me, I find it helpful to see a New Testament church like this kind of being a mess and being petty. I, mean, I find it helpful because there's so many of us here this morning who have taken great offense at the church and its inability to live up to its message. You might be here today and you're struggling with the hypocrisy, the insincerity, and the judgmentalism of a church that you've seen in churches. Maybe you have a right to be upset. You have a right to be upset because I see it all the time. And the Paul, Apostle Paul is upset by it when he saw it at Corinth. But for me, when the Bible shows us the flaws of the church, as it does here in 1 Corinthians very clearly, its aim is not only to correct those flaws, but also to teach us to exercise patience with the church when we see those flaws. 
It reminds us that the struggles of the church today are the same as the struggles back then. I mean, should we really be surprised that the church is full of hypocrites? I mean, hypocrites like me, like you, we're frauds and struggling people, aren't we? After all, isn't the church the best place for us, for us hypocrites, for us who struggle? I mean, where else should we go? Isn't the church the best place for people just like us? So by all means, I think Paul would say this, by all means, let's critique the church for all her failures to be all that she ought not to not be all that she ought to be. But let's not be surprised by it. Let's not be surprised when we see these failures because we're a bunch of sinful people, aren't we? Instead, when we see the failures of the church, instead, let's show something radical. Let's show grace. Let's show patience and long-suffering. Let's see the flaws and then make ourselves see the flaws in the church and look at ourselves. Let's see our church practice patience. Can I be honest with you guys? When I was a, a young Christian in college, I was the most pretentious Christian in the world. There had to be a Greek, like seriously, like I might have won awards for it. I would go to, I would go to like sermons and I'd go to uh, churches and I'd evaluate the sermon, take notes and be like, oh, he didn't see that strongly enough. Or did you see, you know, I've been, you know, there's so many ways I, I would judge the preacher. He wasn't funny enough or he was too funny, you know, or he wasn't passionate enough or he, he just, he was fake passionate. That wasn't deep biblical teaching enough. Oh, that wasn't for the people who didn't know Jesus well enough. And just constantly critique because for some strange reason, that's so innate in our nature is when you're insecure yourself, you critique others and you want to find where they're weak too. Isn't that so true? Guys, can we first, just this aside, can we acknowledge that we are all sinful people and because we're sinful people and sinful people belong in a church, that means the church is going to be a place of sinful people. And if that happens, that means we're going to not do it right all the time. But what makes us different, because every organization in the world, every group that gets together is full of sinful people. What makes us different then is not that we're not full of sinful people, because we're all going to have it, is that what do we do in light of that struggle? Do we have divisions and fight? Or do we show grace and patience? Does that make sense? That's my aside for today. I won't do another one. I might. We'll see. Well, Corinth in particular has been judging Paul harshly and unjustly. I mean, this guy helped plant a church, taught at the church, lived life with these people, and they judged Paul. But this is how Paul responds. He says, quit following leaders, quit putting stock in leaders. He says, learn the gospel, trust the gospel, the gospel changes you. That's the foundation. He says, don't follow these people, follow the foundation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Then he says in verse 4, he says, this then is how you ought to regard us kind of establishing himself as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We ought, to, so we ought to regard him and other leaders whom the Corinthians have been squabbling about, we ought to regard them first as servants of Christ and then as stewards of the mystery of the gospel. So first servants, then stewards. So think about that word servants first. Actually, an unusual word, not the normal word that was used for servant in the New Testament. It's a word in the Greek, huperetus. It originally meant an under rower or a galley slave on the lowest deck of an ancient ship. 
All right, so the picture is a Hooperettus is a guy who's underneath the ship in a galley and who's rowing. And they're all cha maybe chained to, maybe a slave, maybe a servant who's chained to their oar. And the only job is to row with the beat of the drum. Now, by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this term really was kind of a term given in general uh, to this idea of a menial, lowly, humble service. But that's what, this, that's what it means to be a minister, Paul is saying. It's you're a galley slave. You're a servant pulling your oar to the beat of the master's drum. You're a servant of all. And then Paul also says he's a steward. As another word picture, this time of a domestic slave who's been entrusted with the management of the resources of an ancient Greco-Roman household. So notice both are servants and slaves, so both are lowly positions. They were to dispense those resources wisely and carefully. Ministers, Paul says, are stewards of the mysteries of God, which just sounds cool, stewards of the, like that's a cool title to have. I might switch my title, guys, business card, Lawrence, stewards of the mysteries of God. <laughs> right? That sounds so much better than pastor. I'm just saying, I'm going to switch it. Now, when Paul talks about the New Testament, when he talks about mystery, it doesn't mean something out of like a Sherlock Holmes novel or anything like that. It's not an Agatha Christie story here. And you don't have to play detective to try to puzzle out. That's not what a mystery is in the New Testament. It doesn't mean a secret that is hidden from our view, but rather it's a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ that once was obscured, but has now been revealed to the apostles and written down for us in Holy Scripture. That's what's being meant here when it says the mysteries. The Apostle Paul himself has talked about it back in chapter 2, verse 7. We impart, he says, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Then he says in verse 10, these things he has revealed to us by his spirit. So that's what mystery means. This mystery means it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul calls us ministers, stewards of the mysteries of God, he's giving the job description. He's saying it is a minister's fundamental task, like a steward of an ancient household, to dispense of the mysteries of the gospel. In other words, to give, to preach the gospel, to feed the members of the household with the truth of the gospel, supply them with the resources of the word of God, and the knowledge of God for their nourishment and for their provision. Now, there may be a thousand other tasks that Paul and other ministers might have been doing, but this is the fundamental, ultimate task is to explain the scriptures, to preach Christ, and to share the gospel. So he's an under rower, a galley slave, pulling his oar to the beat of King Jesus, his master's drum. And he's a steward, caring for the household of faith, wisely dispensing and giving the gospel message, the gospel of grace to God's people. Still think mysteries of the gods, that's so much better. But one key insight in the leadership I want you to see from these two verses, just one just really key insight, is godly leaders focus only on pleasing God. A galaxy doesn't evaluate his life based on where the ship goes or what cargo it's carrying. Only the drummer's beat. A steward doesn't evaluate his life by whether or not the household he manages its success or not. That's on the master. The steward just obeys the master's wishes. Success for the galley slave and the steward is the same. It's obedience. Do you see how that would change your leadership if you saw that your success isn't based on results but based on obedience? Do you guys hear that? My success as a leader isn't based on how big our church becomes or if I write a m multiple books or if all of you guys think I'm the coolest person in the world. It's purely based, my success is purely based in my being obedient to Jesus, my master. Guys, can I tell you that is freeing. 
That is so free. That frees me from having to compare myself to others. Well, look at that guy. He wrote like 10 books. Dang, why can't I write 10 books? Or look, at, look at that person. That, that person has shared the gospel with a bazillion people. Or that person has a huge church, whatever it may be. It's just not, that doesn't matter. I'm a galley slave. I'm a steward of a, the other person's house. It's not my responsibility. All I'm supposed to do is just do what the master says for me to do. That's it. I love that. Guys, can I tell you, when you're the one in charge, it's, it's rough. Responsibility is heavy. At my house, I'm like, I love like, I want to be the guy that doesn't want to make hard decisions. So I'm like, hey, Gina, what do you want? And that way, if I pick the wrong thing to eat, you know, I'm like, oh, Gina doesn't like this. I'm like, Gina, what do you want to eat? Because that way, if she picks it, it's always, if I don't like it, I can complain to her. It's her fault. <laughs> I mean, there's just, honestly, I do things like that because I'm a people pleaser. And I, I don't like it if I make the wrong decision that I get blamed for. So I don't want to make decisions sometimes. Because what it comes down to is when you're the one in charge, when you're the one responsible, it, heavy, it weighs heavy on you. And this is what Jesus is talking about, guys. His burden is light. Why? Because he's the one responsible. He's the one in charge. He's the one that's going to get stuff done. It's in his power that we move. We're just the one that says, okay, we're like, the, what do you want done? Okay, I'll go do that. Yes, hear that. That should go to you. That should say to you, ah, so your neighbor, it's not on you. He's the only one that can do it. It's not on you to do it. You don't have the power. And your friends that you're praying for, the ones that you love so dearly, he has the power. It's not on you. But he says, go. And your call is only just to be obedient to what he says for you to do. And that is your success. And that brings him glory. Do you hear that? Godly leaders focus only on pleasing God. That's the measure of their success. If you look at verses three, it says, but with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby by acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul tells us in, in verses three how gospel ministers and by extension how every Christian ought to view yourself. He started with how the church should view the gospel ministers. In other words, you view them as servants, as stewards, but now how gospel ministers should view themselves. There are actually three courtrooms I want you to see in these, in these few verses. I want you to think about the first two, then we'll go to the third one. So the first two, the first courtroom that Paul mentions, and I hope you can see in the text, is the courtroom of public opinion. All right, do you see that? But with me, verse three, but with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul has been tried in the court of public opinion in Corinth. He was judged by the people there. And for, and for many of them, he was found lacking. He must not have looked the part. I don't know what Paul looked like, but he must not have been impressive. Paul didn't sound the part. The great philosophers and orders of that age traveled around, wore flowing robes, looked impressive, could have a voice that could reach the end. And I, I don't have a good voice like that. And it must have been tough. The court of public opinion is tough. Everyone has a perspective. Everyone is a judge. Everyone's a critic. I mean, I do it all the time. I watch TV, I watch a basketball game, I yell at the basketball. Uh, I, I yell at the guy, I'm like, dude, seriously, how could you miss that shot? But I'm like, I would miss that shot every time. But how could you miss that shot? Or you see the coach out there, and you're like, Mac Brown, man, why are you didn't work an option? What are you doing? Uh, is that hurt still? <laughs> Does everybody get that? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> it happens all the time when you throw yourself out there in leadership. I wonder every Sunday, what do you think about my sermon? And I throw it out there. I throw out the message for the court of public opinion. 
And it's, guys, can I tell you, it's not easy. It's not, I'll be honest with you. Like, I feel like I'm exposed every single time I do it. And there's this court of public opinion that's out there in Corinth that he's saying, there's a court of people that are judging me, but then there's another courtroom. Paul mentions it's not just a court of public opinion, but it's the court of private conscience. I do not even judge myself, he says. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. In the court of his own conscience, while he's unaware of anything specific that can condemn him, he knows that, that his own private word, his own estimation of himself, is hardly any more reliable than the biased judgments of the Corinthians. Guys, can I tell you something? This is something for me, I, deal, I struggle with more of the court of public opinion. I care what people think about me. My wife, on the other hand, she could care less. She's like, what? If they don't think I'm right, then they're wrong. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but do you know who's her worst critic? Herself. She's so hard on herself. She's so harsh to herself. And I'm like, whoa, you need to calm down there. You know, you're doing a pretty good job. Oh, I'm doing terrible. Guys, don't we do that? It's either a court of public opinion or it's your own, your own courtroom in your own head, in your own mind, the court of private conscience. And I want us to notice carefully how Paul deals with the verdict of both courts. On the one hand, he says, it's a very small thing to be judged by you in the court of public opinion. On the other hand, I don't even trust my own judgments about myself in the court of private conscience. So clearly, he doesn't put much stock in either of those verdicts of either of those courts, does he? So here's my question. As I take all this in, as I see how Paul handles himself in light of the world and the verdict of public opinion of his own conscience, here's my question. Here's what I really want to know is, how do you do that, Paul? How do you not care and make light of the court of public opinion and also the court of your own conscience, of your own mind? I mean, wouldn't you like to be free from what others' opinions of you are? Wouldn't you love to be unconcerned about the judgments against you? Wouldn't you like to be free from the, 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 even the tyranny of your own self-doubt, self-critique, your, your blindness, even over maybe your issues of your own self-arrogance? Both of which Paul seems to avoid in our passage marvelously. How does he do it? I don't care if you judge me. I don't even trust my own judgments. Here's how ministers ought to view themselves. Neither driven by the fear of men, nor enslaved by the demands of their pride or their own ego. And here's a model I rather suspect of how we all would love to view ourselves. is unconcerned about what people say about us and not for a moment believing our own publicity, our own hype either. But let's be honest, that seems ridiculously hard to achieve, doesn't it? I mean, don't we often find ourselves cowering in fear of other people's judgment or deeply wounded when we hear them? Aren't we moved and swayed so easily by what we think people will say about us? Or aren't we often living in fear or even just overwhelmed by our, the oppression of our own thoughts about ourselves? I like to tell young ministers um, when they come to work, start working at a church that they need to develop thick skins and tender hearts. Thick skin and tender hearts. But too often we have thin skin and hard hearts, right? We're so thin skinned as ministry leaders that every barb, every snide remark, every person that falls asleep during your preaching, uh, I see you got no. <laughs> it penetrates and it wounds. But if our hearts are hard, we don't learn the lessons. We're not teachable. And the wounds that we receive, they don't bear any fruit in effective ministry. But what we need are thick skin and tender hearts. And that's what Paul seems to model here. He says it's a small thing. So it's still a thing, but it's a small thing I'm judged by you. 
She has a tender heart. I don't even judge myself. I don't trust my own verdict. She's teachable. There's humility. Cultivating thick skin and a tender heart is not easy. How do, does Paul do it? How do we do it? How do we develop it to the point where the barbs and the attacks and the snide remarks and the hurtful things other people might say to us doesn't wreck us to the core, but instead hits our thick skin, we absorb it, and our soft hearts learn from it? Right? Verse 5. He told us how the church ought to view the gospel ministers. He told us how, to, how ministers and every Christian ought to view themselves. Now he tells us what really matters most is how God views us all. Here's the third courtroom in our passage, the one that actually counts. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and what is closed the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, Paul says. He's echoing the very familiar words with Jesus, judge not lest you be judged. Favorite words in this kind of cultural climate, isn't it? Often they've taken to mean that we ought not to make moral judgments. You know, don't make any moral judgments. Moral judgments are off limits. Don't judge to call something right or something wrong is judgmental and unloving, we're told. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Actually, if you look at the next chapter, we see him making very strong moral judgments. Indeed, urging the church to practice discipline in the case of sexual immorality. And in fact, verse 3 of chapter 5, Paul his leg says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he's clearly pronouncing judgment against moral issues. So Paul isn't saying here, when he tells the Corinthians not to pass judgment for the time, he's not saying don't make moral judgments. He's also not saying don't make theological judgments. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the ministry of the prophets at the church in Corinth. He says that two or three at most should speak and the rest should weigh what is said. That word translated weigh is actually the word to judge. Judge what is being said. You are to exercise theological discernment to weigh and to judge the truthfulness of what is being taught from the scriptures. In other words, when I speak and when I share from scripture, you need to be judging what I say. So don't be, oh, Paul said not to judge. No, 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 judge. Judge what I say. So Paul is saying don't make moral judgments about what is right and wrong. Neither is he saying don't make doctrinal judgments. The Bible commands us to do both, to do with humility. But Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for developing a standard of their own, not a biblical standard, but a standard based on a personal standard based on personal tastes and preferences, then acting as a judge and executioner upon it. Do not pronounce judgments like that before the time he is saying, that is before the Lord returns. When Jesus comes back and the final quorum is called into session, he will judge by the perfect standards of God's word, and his judgments will overturn yours every time. So if you look at the end of verse 5, you'll see how it is that Paul is able to live free from the fear of the opinion of others in this court of public opinion and his own assessment loosely. Remember, he couldn't care less if the Corinthians demonized him or idolized him. He refused to put much store by his own estimation of himself. Here's how he managed to do that. He was only looking for the commendation of the almighty God. He says the only opinion that matters is the receiving the commendation from God. He's laboring to hear those awesome words, well done, good and faithful servant. No one else's opinion, not even his own, carries final weight. He wants to hear that well done. What is the path to self-forgetfulness so that you're not enslaved by the opinions of your own pride, that you're not enslaved by the opinions of others? What is that path? Is that you find that you're enslaved to the opinions of somebody that's worth more, something that's perfect, something that's glorious. You're enslaved to the opinions of the God, the Father who made you who calls you, who loves you. 
And how, how freeing it is to know that the one, the only opinion of you that matters is God and he already knows you, he already loves you. How freeing it is to know that you're not, trying, you're not holding one over. Guys, can I tell you this? Do you know why I care so much? Why, what do you think of me? Because in my mind, I feel like I can, I can trick you guys to think I'm pretty cool. I care so much because in my mind, you don't know the deepest and darkest sin in my heart. You don't know the depths of my mess upness. You don't know it, right? And I'm telling you, it's there, but you guys still don't know what it is. You just don't know the depth of my issues and my sin. I don't know the depth of yours, but this, I carry this person that says, well, I can kind of keep it from you. And I can still trick you and I can still have you kind of like me, right? Guys, with God, there is no hiding who you are. There is no hiding it. I can't tell you how freeing it is to know that you can be fully, utterly, completely just known, exposed, vulnerable, known completely. No hiding it, no more masks to wear, no more costumes, no more play acting, no more, no more faking it. Just known for all your issues and then you can still be loved. To be radically still loved, be known, and to be loved, it frees you. God, can I tell you something? I mean, if all that Josiah and my two sons, if all that Josiah and Hudson ever had to do in this world is to please me, then they're in great shape because I'm already so greatly pleased with them. If all Josiah and Hudson ever had to do was please me, then they're in pretty good shape because a smile, a hug, a laugh, all they have to do is go, Appa, and I'm like, oh, okay. That's fine. I just like watching them sleep. I like watching them play. I laugh at them eating. I'm already so pleased with them. I love them and I adore them so much. Guys, we can face the court of public opinion. We can face our own doubts and our own insecurities because the only opinion that matters is God's. And he says through Jesus that I know you and I love you and I am pleased with you. Oh, wow. That is so freeing. That's so freeing. All my life, I wished, I, I, my dad's a hard man. I love my dad. He's a great guy. And he worked his butt off. He worked three million jobs and worked his whole life. And he was a hard man. He always made sure I had to make straight A's. And if that person got a 95, I had to make a 99 and that kind of dad. And, you know, he was tough. And I, I disappointed him many times along the way. And I remember just thinking of multiple times, I remember this one moment, this is silly, but the, I think the moment that he was most proud of me was when I uh, married my wife because she's Korean and a doctor. So she was like, yay, okay, you did it. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, he's proud of me. <laughs> it's true, I'm, just, I'm not lying, this is a true story. <laughs> and I remember that moment, oh, that feels good. My dad's all happy, he's, he's at the wedding and he's like cheerful and I can just tell, he's like, he wants to keep on patting me on my back and saying I'm pleased and how happy he is, how proud of me he is. And I'm like, oh, this feels good. And I realized that for so long in my life, I'm trying to make that guy happy and I love my dad, don't get me wrong. When I realized that how good that felt, it just paled in comparison to know that my God was already pleased with me. Not because anything I did to earn it, because of the work of Jesus Christ in my life. Oh, I'm serious, like just a breath of fresh air. Guys, can I tell you this? You're all called to be Christian leaders. As a follower of Christ, you're gonna lead others. Whether it's your household, your family, your children, your friends, your neighbors, you're all called to be leaders. The only one 
that you need to worry about pleasing is God and he's already pleased with you. Do you hear that? <sighs> Feels good. Lead in that place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus. God, we thank you that by his grace and by his love, we are known and we are loved and we are called to purpose, called to leadership, called to be stewards and servants, God. Called to be people who, who give your gospel out to others, who obey the drumbeat of, of our master. God, may we judge not by the ways of the world, but may we judge by obedience. May we be obedient to the calling you've placed upon us. God, show us how to be confident, God, in the way you view us. Give us that kind of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.